This is SciBite, episode 61, for September 4th, 2012. Hi everyone and welcome to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast, fresh every Wednesday morning over at jupiterbroadcasting.com and live Tuesday evenings over at jblive.tv, 7.30 p.m. Pacific. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey, Heather. Happy science to you. Happy science. What are we talking about this week? This week, we're going to take a look at more exoplanets around binary stars, a dinosaur's dinner, sweet clouds around a star, diagnosing with eyes, updates <laughs> on... Uh, bionic eyes. Okay. And as always, take a peek back into history and up in the sky this week. And I think there might even be uh, a few rover updates in there too, Heather. All right. Yes, indeed. That all sounds quite epic. I'm prepared to go out into space and then come back down to Earth to our eyeballs. So why don't we get started with our first news story? All right, Heather, what is the first news story this week? We've got more Tatooine planets. Ooh. We talked about it back in October. They found, you know, the first planet around a binary star. Now they've actually found multiple planet system around a binary star. Oh. The two stars themselves orbit around each other in about seven and a half days. The larger one, about the size of the sun, uh, the smaller one. About a third of that size. In now, space. In space, yes. And the two planets actually orbit around both stars. Oh, really? Okay. So it's like main star, then it's almost like the, the smaller star is like a planet orbiting around it. So the so the, it's mostly around the larger star. Huh. Uh, the, lar- the inside planet is about three times the width of Earth. And... And the larger outside planet is about uh, a little over four and a half times the size of Earth. Now it's it's going to make an orbit about every a little over three hundred days. Oh, and it's actually in the quote unquote habitable zone. Hmm. But its size is it's about the size of Uranus, so it's probably just an icy giant planet. Oh. Not really any place that anything's going to happen. Oh. Yeah, I know. Now the system itself is really dim. The, uh, I mean, the main star is about 6,000 times dimmer than what you can see with the naked eye. So taking the spectra of it is really hard. Mm, mm. So they've seen these two planets that are confirmed. They've, some of them say that they've actually seen a dip for possibly a third planet, but they've only seen it like once. So they're really not sure. Oh, they're really just looking at the blink or the uh, the change in light, right? Yeah, this is from uh, Kepler. It looks at the uh, dimming of the light exactly. Right. Wow. This Kepler uh, this Kepler array is just showing us um, how populated. How many? I mean, just so many planets are out there. Everywhere we look, we're just seeing more and more of these things. Oh yeah, and if you ever see like. It's like, here is a little square where Kepler is looking, and the rest of the sky is here. <laughs> it's like small little postage stamp section. 
And there's these little things. And, you know, they for a long time, they never thought that planets could orbit around a binary star. Hmm. You know, in October, they're like, oh, wait, yes, they can. Huh. I talked to George Lucas, and he says, yes, you may use the word Tatooine. <laughs> So uh, what does this what does this mean? Does this mean that uh, once again uh, we, we're looking to an area? While this time we haven't seen planets that are very Earth-like, at least we're seeing um, things that sort of confirm uh, our other findings. Is this kind of what is this kind of the takeaway from this, or what's the what's the takeaway here? Uh, pretty much takeaway is we're as we're discovering these more and more kind of wild systems, like on the edge, like huh. I didn't think that would happen. Mm. And was it, I read a quote this last week uh, from an author, Isaac Isamoff, and it was um, something along the lines of, the greatest scientific discoveries, I mean, the ones that really change things, don't fall, aren't followed by the word eureka. It's, huh, that's funny. So it, it's kind of like that you see something and you're like, huh, that. That's weird. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, well, that means we made some assumptions that maybe we have to relook at. Yeah. So, hmm. so it's really just tweaking the whole system and how the programs about how we think planets form. Well, what is kind of the background? There. With, so, why do you know the background on why they didn't think a binary star system would uh, would would have uh, whole planetary systems like this? Is it just because well, of the disruptive, I mean, is it something? Yeah, the disruptive nature of the gravitational fields. Yeah. Because there's not, there's going to be a constant tug. It's not, you know, you're sitting in a mm. specific orbit mm -hmm. and you're always seeing the same gravitational force. Right, right. Now, if there is another star, then you're getting sort of different pulling forces. on it all the time. Sort of like how the moon pulls on the earth a little bit, but much more dramatic. Exactly. We talked uh, a few uh, side bites ago in the last couple of months about uh, all these two planets were so close together. Like you could see one set on the other planet. You could see one setting. So yeah. it was, it's another one of these things where we assumed that if things are so close together that they're going to disrupt the gravitational field. So that means it must not be that way. But we're kind of seeing that at some point along a solar systems, you know, how it's evolving, going from step by step about how it's forming, that... At some point in time, yes, these things can actually happen. So we're getting a better idea of how all these things work. There's so many, I mean, so many of the, the grand ideas of how gravity works on the very large scale. You know, mm -hmm. it's on the very large scale, on the very small scale. It, it's, it's kind of not what we would think automatically. Right. So looking on these giant scales and looking at this, you know, how planets form and what's going on, then we're looking and be like, okay, take it by the numbers and we can well, tweak our formulas. Yeah, I mean, doesn't that, aren't you, isn't what you're saying then is that, well, all those places we've written off that had a blinking star, <laughs> guess what? We probably want to go back and take another look at those because maybe there was something there, actually. Yeah, so, exactly. I mean, there are stars that blink. You know, they're variable stars. But a lot of these stars, the more we look at it, they were like, oh, wow, there's a lot of planets. And the, the idea of being able to be around binary stars is because that makes up a huge chunk of our galaxy. So does that make it trickier to, uh, to, to see the dimming from the planet on a binary star that's blinking already? Does that make it 
well, those are variable stars, but Is it's it kind okay? of a separate separate oh, issue. Oh, okay. But with a binary star, you've got the added, you know, the stars rotating around each other. Yeah, yeah. So that's dimming and brightening, and then you have to look for a planet crossing one and crossing the other and being able to, you know, map it all out in the right way. Right. It's a little bit trickier. But as we've seen these planets around binary stars, around we've actually seen one around a, a red dwarf in the last uh, couple months we saw. So it's these kind of stars are highly populist. You know, they have a high population in the galaxy. So we started off going, all right, there's a specific kind of star by itself that these things can be around. And then as we looked, we're like, oh, yeah, there, there's quite a number more than we thought. And then we kind of saw, starting to see them around binary stars. They were like, oh, wow, if they can happen around binary stars, there's a whole bunch of more planets that are possible. So we're seeing all these potential, you know, worlds. Now, none of them have actually, you know, been in the magical Earth zone. You know, that we can, you know, it's, some of them are close. Some of them kind of lie in that area, but we're not able to see, you know, atmosphere, water, rocky planet, right where it needs to be. So we're kind of seeing how rare our system is actually. Hmm. And there's we did no, get pretty kind of lucky, didn't we? Yeah, we're looking at outside the universe and being like, huh, there's a lot of ways this can happen, a lot of crazy combinations. And we had this, you know, really awesome one right here. So it's kind of showing us that we thought that we were kind of run of the mill. We we're assuming, oh, our solar system must be run of the mill, usual. No, not quite. So not only are we, you know, we're expanding how these form, we're looking at where they can be, you know, making a guess as to, you know, how many planets might be out there and mm. tweaking the system so much that we're actually able to see what it takes to make our solar system as well. Mm -hmm. So. We can keep so saying, man, boy, we got a, we got a, we got a good draw there. That was nice. Lucky. Plus, we just got a lot of good variety to look at. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Heather, any other thoughts on that one? No, I don't think so. All right. Hold on one second, ladies and gentlemen. Put your uh, uh, beverage down or maybe good chance to <laughs> refill your beverage. I'm not sure. Whatever however you whatever you do at this moment of the show because we have a couple of picks for you this week. So uh, one of the things uh, longtime viewers and uh, listeners of this show know is that uh, SciBite is an audience-supported show. The, uh, the science can be uh, directly powered by you and uh, one of the ways you can do that is through our affiliate system and we have links at the bottom of jupiterbroadcasting.com for our affiliates for Amazon and uh, Netflix and Newegg and ThinkGeek and Audible which I love in fact um, I have a really great Audible pick I want to make I haven't made one in a yeah. while and Heather we talked about Star Wars uh, the Thrawn trilogy yes and I even recommended book number uh, one on this show mm -hmm. very very good and what's very cool is not only is the narrator, uh, Mark Thompson, he's quite good, but uh, it, they had a, they added all of these ambient sound effects and sort of made it a, a you know a radio drama type mm -hmm. production. There's multiple multiple narrators and Lucas sound effects and all these kinds of things. Very very uh, um, very fun. Uh, but the the second and third books weren't so good, so I never recommended them on the show. But I'm actually very very pleased to say that in June they redid all of the books 
uh, all the all the later books, and uh, they they sound much better now. They oh, have wow. uh, all the ambient sound I effects. Unlikely that I'll a play man a little of bit. talon cards cunning would set up a base in the middle of a forest and without also setting effects. up security contacts mm-hmm. with others outside the immediate area. Hilliard City is too far from Card's base for anyone there to directly witness our attack. Hence, any sudden flurries of activity in the city will imply the existence of a more subtle line of communication. From that, we'll be able to identify Card's contacts and put them under long-term surveillance. So uh, there, you, I'll put a link to that in the uh, the show notes. That is uh, a great, great book. And oh, yeah. uh, now, now it's got all of the cool, really awesome sound effects. And, I love uh, when they're uh, radio drama like that. It's 14 hours and 56 minutes of entertainment. And uh, I, you guys, I love these books. And now they're even better. Yes. Uh, now, but if you're going to be shopping at Amazon, just a couple of quick picks we've got for you as well. Uh, well number one, get your pre-order in for the, the Avengers, the number one movie of the summer, available on DVD or Blu-ray on Amazon. You can get the pre-order now through our affiliate links. And uh, Heather reminded us that Borderlands 2 is uh, available in, what, two weeks? Is that what it is? Yes. Pretty much exactly two weeks. There you go. Great game. Uh, At least Borderlands 1 was. So I have all the expectations of Borderlands 2. And you've got the the pre-order extras, the Mechromancer class, and a whole bunch of other little things that you get. So There you go. It's always a good idea to pre-order. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you can use our affiliate links that way. When you're getting yourself a little treat, you also are giving Cybite and Jupiter Broadcasting. A little treat. Isn't that nice? Isn't that a exactly. nice thing to do? All right, Heather, then why don't we move into the news bite? Ta-ta-ta-ta. I feel like I feel like it's time to talk about something in the news bite. What do you got for me? All right. Dinosaur dinner menus. Okay. So Okay. Yeah, so fossils are occasionally found. Um, very occasionally, with you know, you see the remains of an animal or plants inside um, you know, their stomach. You can kind of see that fossilized a little bit. And it'll kind of shed, you know, a little bit of idea of what they ate. So you can see, you know, this is a predator. It ate mammals. You know, get an idea of what it... Sure. You know, and so on top of that, you can also see, well, based upon what it ate, then how fast did it need to move? How did, you know, how would it be able to hunt that? Oh, yeah, yeah. So they've actually... We're investigating a couple of specimens of a predator... uh, Cynocolopteryx. I mangled that, but it's it's tough. Uh, about the size of a wolf, about uh, six feet long. Had kind of hair-like feathers, huh. just kind of a fuzz. Yeah, we're I... seeing more and more of these, like have this little fuzz, and helps keep them warm. And yeah, one of right. the specimens yeah. had a completely, like, really well-preserved skeleton of like a bird-like dinosaur. It was like cat-sized. Hmm. And so it was, they actually were able to see uh, that it gobbled at least two of them up at about the same time. No kidding. They were able to see it in the stomach, pretty much whole bones. I believe they actually were able to look at the fossil of one of the, the leg bones of the, you know, of the bird. And they actually see kind of it speckled because like as the stomach was digesting it, like the acids in the stomach started eating away at the bone. Gross. Yeah. But... So they're able to say because there was multiple of these, it's probably from this they're able to say, okay, this animal is probably not a scavenger because it has. If it was a scavenger, it have multiple different types of meals. It just kind of be on the go. Hmm. Now, if it was specifically hunting for this, then it would be much more likely because it's 
it's a preferred diet. It's going after these specific birds. And because so you say, okay, then it's probably a, a you know a hunter, not a scavenger. Mm. And then because they're you know you're looking at something that flies, then you need to be able to sneak up on them. So it's probably something that is a stealthy predator. Ah. So all those kind of things you can be like, okay. So they're so sneaky and they're about the so size sne- of a wolf. Yep, sneaky about the size of a wolf can eat cat-sized things, and imagine if we like like if these came back and like they were eating people's pets. These things are the freakiest looking. Like, picture like a velociraptor only meaner, right? That's what fuzzy doesn't doesn't fuzzy make it more you know cuddleable? Uh, no, because I'm no. probably they're probably an allergic to them too. They probably have some sort yeah of, yeah. <laughs> wow, allergic to feathers. Yeah, it's. The pictures for this are kind of creepy because it's like he's eating that thing. Yeah, he's eating the little bird. Yeah, yeah, cat bird. Hmm. Well, that you know what you know what I find amazing about about this and all the other dinosaur stories. Uh huh. Is that it's 2012 and there's still just a ton of stuff happening in dinosaurs. Oh well, yeah. <laughs> it is really kind of actually pretty impressive. Yeah, all right, well, Heather. Well, oh no. Yeah, go ahead. Well, it's it's kind of like uh, you know space. It's like you you're like okay, we think we got to figure it out. Oh, wait, there's something new. All right, now let's try to figure this out and shuffle everything else around. Pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome. The science continues. Yes. Um, our, uh, our, inter- our intern, Uhura, is handing me a... Oh, she says we have, uh, we have some viewer feedback to get to. Yes, this is a story that I saw, and then I saw a, uh, also a, an email from the viewers. It was kind of on the... A sweet star cloud. So they've actually seen sugar molecules found in the gas surrounding a young star-like, a young sun-like star. You're blowing my mind. No way. Yes, the star has a sweet tooth. It was just actually, oddly enough, a story that I was trying to decide whether I'd cover. And then I got it into the, you know, I heard from the viewers and I was like, oh, nope, got to go in. <laughs> there you go. See, you guys can help uh, tide the, uh, you can tip the scale. Just email us, uh, scibite at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Yep. So this specific star is another one in a binary. It's about the size of the sun, about 400 light years away. But these sugar molecules, uh, glycodehydrate. Wow, these these words are just going to kill me. Um, <laughs> I don't even try to practice beforehand. They've, now, they've been seen before in interstellar space, these specific sugars, the, a simple type of sugar, um, more like what you put in coffee or you know tea or whatever it is you drink. So Really? That's yeah, incredible. So, yeah, so it's a, a simpler sugar, and they've seen it in interstellar space, as I've said, but this is the first time that they've seen it spotted so close to a sun-like star. Now, they're about the distance away as uh, Uranus is from the sun. But, you know, I mean, you know, you see, oh, hey, they, they, found, they found sugar. How does this happen? Well, you know, how do we see it? Oh, yeah. That's a really good question, too. Like, how do you know there's sugar out there? Yeah. Huh. So when, when new stars are formed, you know, there's a cloud of dust and gas. And it's extremely cold. And as the new star develops, it heats it up, um, you know, the internal to about the, you know, room temperature, which is actually quite warm compared to space. And that evaporates all these chemical mo- molecules. Hmm. And so from that, they can emit, then those emit radiation. And then you can pick that up from sensitive radio telescopes. So you can, and this, um, 
this particular star is pretty close to Earth in astronomical, you know, distance speaking. So they're able to actually look at this pretty closely and see how far away it is from the star and that, that it's kind of moving in towards the, you know, sort of falling in towards the star. So they're, so they're saying, you know, okay, it's out there and that's coming in towards the star. So you know, there's sugars falling in. So it gives you another idea of, okay, what's, how this is forming, when it's forming, why is it moving in and all these kind of things. But I never really, I guess I never gave thought that sugar would be floating out there. I just, I just thought that was something that would be on the planet. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of things that they're the molecules. Yeah, they're all out there, right? All the components yeah. are out there. Yeah, I mean, they, they you know. They got here somehow. It. Yeah, they got here somehow. <laughs> and, you know, the, the stuff here is this is the stuff out there. But it is kind of kind of weird when you think about it. Because they've actually, you know, they know, they've seen it in star space. But now it's close to a star, so you kind of see it Right, you can see like more. 500 years in the future when we're just traveling around the universe like uh, the pros that will be. And and the captain will want some fresh sugar for his coffee, so it's uh, they, like, they have to swing by the sugar like, cloud. <laughs> I, I I take my my coffee with uh, with sugar. I was like, well, for me tea. I'm like, yeah, give me my tea. Hold hold your cup out, you know, in space. Hang scoop up some window. interstellar yeah. sugar. <laughs> um, this should work fine, right? That, no problem with that. Yeah. Somebody in the chat room asked, uh, Durs, is this in the Milky Way? Yes. All the stars we're talking about. Anytime you talk about a star, it's in the Milky Way. It's, you know, in our galaxy. Anything, the only stars specifically that you're going to see in other galaxies is when they supernova, when it's, you know, really bright, it shines and it kind of is so much, yeah, you can see it from here. But otherwise, all the stars we see, you know, individually are all in our galaxy. There you go. All right, Heather, what do you say we bust into the two-byte news? Are you ready? Let's go. Two-byte news. That was good. I like that one. It was, it was nice. Yeah, I, I think uh, now I could just record that. Oh, I did record it. Hey, guess what? Good oh, news. So there you go. Uh, yeah. All right. What is our first story in the uh, two bite news? Well, to diagnosing diagnosing diseases with the eyes. The researchers have actually devised a method where they can detect certain neurological disorders through the study of eye movement. Hmm. There's yeah, there's a whole bunch of different things, uh, ADHD, um, Parkinson's, really? a whole bunch of different things that are affect the vision. So they thought, well, maybe we can identify some of these things about how they move their eyes while they watch television. So best, awesomest, well, you know, really great way to be identified. They had this, the... The, st- the participants sit, and they're like, all right, watch TV, have fun. Really? And then they, all they did is watch the eye movements of the participants while they watch TV. They just recorded them with a camera or something, huh? Yeah, television clips, about 20 minutes, and they and they actually you know, took 108 subjects. And they were able to identify you know, older adults with Parkinson's disease about 89 and 89% of the time. And children with ADHD or other things with 77% accuracy. Interesting. So it's it's kind of an interesting way to, to take it, considering you know it's easily deployed, it's low cost, you know you can it's easy to screen, and it's handy for especially young children or elderly patients 
who are going to be less compliant to traditional tests because a lot of these tests you have to be able to understand and comply with instructions. You know, they're costly, labor intensive. So, you know, not only is a lot more going into it, but, you know, kids oh. and some of the that doesn't contain- actually when I think about it, it doesn't surprise me that much. Because yeah. don't we don't we naturally kind of like sometimes look into look in somebody in their eyes and go, I think something's not quite right with this person. <laughs> right? And that might be like subconsciously what we're doing. Maybe we look at them and going, ah, that eye's a little weird. It's twitching. <laughs> that eye's twitching at me. Oh my goodness. Right? I think well, people this, do that. Uh, well, I know people do it. But this <laughs> is specifically, you know, the ability to look at one thing, right. you know, in, in Parkinson's, you're going to have some shaking and ADHD. You're going to have, you know, uh, looking all over the place. And it's valuable and, as another data point and as part of a diagnosis. Yes. So, you know, maybe that goes through in that, you know, even this kind of, you know, with 80%, 90%, 70%, any of these, you can kind of test a whole swath of people. And you're like, all right, we're going to catch the majority with just this, you know, what this 20-minute uh, cartoon. You know what they ought to do, solve this problem, is just install these cameras in uh, movie theaters across America, and then we can just start diagnosing people when they're at theaters, and if they have a neurological disorder, they're just not allowed to leave the theater until they get treatment. And uh, then uh, they can install them in connects at home, and then people don't even have to leave the house. That could be good, too. Um, You're bordering on creepy. Okay, all right, maybe I went too far. I'm sorry. sorry. It's okay. You know what? If you have it, like, you can install it on, like, your own personal iPod. And you're like, all or like right. like an iPhone app, right? Like you hold yeah. up the front-facing like, camera to your at, face. You know, look at me. And then I'm going to like watch something. And then you're like, okay, app. Do I need to go to the doctor? Click. There's it's like that. Directions to your local doctor are here. Wow. You're totally right. You nailed it. That's what that's what it is right there. That'll be you know, for For your own self and your own control, then, you know, yeah. then that's one thing. Yeah. But, you know, de- deploying in the theaters. You know, right, they're like, all right. You know, yeah. they're, they're watching for Maybe all the so people, good. you know, filming the movie and oh wait your your eyes are twitching in the wrong way you, you must come with us yeah okay <laughs> probably so, yeah maybe not so good yeah. all right uh was something that does sound like a good idea would be martian reality tv oh it sort of sounds like a horrible idea <laughs> so, oh my goodness really tell me this, you okay so this is a privately funded you know program that wants to get uh people to mars and they want to get their Landing humans on the Mars by 2023. So, so this, they're going to make a TV show out of it? Yeah. They want, they say, okay, we can cost about six billion person, billion for the first four humans. And then the idea is, you know, get everything set up, you know, send for a rover, send supplies, have it all set, send the first four humans, then every two years, send another two people, you know, televise the whole process, you know, selection of the 40 astronaut you know 40 person astronaut corps it's going to begin next year they're going to televise the whole thing you know make it a huge global reality tv event to pull in all this money to I, do this. i think this is i think this sounds brilliant what's wrong with this um the part where there are no plans to return them it's a one-way trip oh. it, it's a one-way trip that's reality tv Oh, jeez, yeah, that I, could get that could get na- not nasty. Yeah, and so the whole idea of you know privately funding you know is is great. I love the privately funded stuff, but it kind of creeps me out a little bit because it is. I mean, there are people who would very gladly take a one way trip, but 
if it's totally like based upon revenue, I mean, what happens if you drop after season two? It's like, yeah, we don't have the ratings anymore. There's, there's, we've only have two seasons. You think of, it would? I mean, I would think something like this would become like a. Uh, this is this. I think the argument for having it be a nation state doing that is that nation becomes like, like, like the nation up on the pedestal that accomplishes this task. But if a company did it, that'd be interesting. I still think it would be like this amazing thing that we'd all be pulling for just around the world. It'd be still. Be, I don't know. How could anything like this ever have bad ratings? The ultimate TV no. show. Well, yeah, but I mean, people. How would they get the get TV distracted and bored? And I don't know. The whole thing doesn't sound it, technically possible. Yeah, it sounded like interesting, and the more I read about it, it was kind of creepyish, and I don't know why, but I get like the wrong kind of vibe just because how they were handling it. I mean, the whole idea of you know send the basic idea of the program, you know, send the supplies ahead, start making it, you know, start making With the atmosphere and stuff, build it. Yeah, right. I mean, there's assemble um, a little bit as much autonomously as possible, and then send down yeah, a small. Yeah, the Mars Direct program, the whole you know NASA originally had that. You know, it's send the stuff ahead, start making all the materials you need. Go ahead, have everything stocked and ready, and actually built so that over time you actually have all the fuel you need to return home before you shoot any astronauts that way. So everything is set. Everything is ready. All you have to do is land nearby. What a bummer if you don't make it then. What a waste. Well, you know. They actually haven't <laughs> quite figured that part out yet, right? Oh, oh I love the green screen video they got of some person walking on Mars at a crew. We could do that. We could do that here in our studio. Yeah, it, like, if you're like the voiceover for that, it's, it's pretty much like, come and join us. Enter our program. Really? <laughs> it was kind of weird. Should I play it? And uh, you can see all the studio lights in the helmet too. Yeah. Visit Mars Okay, let's play that. We gotta hear that part. Okay. For you to join us in this great adventure. For more information, visit mars-one.com. Oh, we gotta do that, Heather. Come on. Yeah. You could do. So, you could do I podcasts had the from voice there? and the whole idea going. You just thought I was being creepy in <laughs> in 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 the you know voiceoverish, but no. Wow. That is a that that was a that was a surprise one. I did not see that coming. Yeah, so the whole idea is interesting, you know, the the overall idea, you know, of the setup, you know, and it, you know, make, I've heard of this before off and on over the years, you know, how do you get, you know, from there, you know, well, is there some, you know, there's some crazy mineral that's, you know, going to sell for a whole bunch that we're shy or, you know, do you make it a reality TV show so that, you know, people will buy, you know, get the money for that, like, you know, Survivor and Big Brother and all that kind of crazy, the reality TV shows. So it's, yeah. why don't you market Mars in that way? Right. So it's interesting. It reminds me of, wasn't it the movie uh, Truman, where this whole life is mm -hmm. a reality TV show? There was also a, a short-lived ABC TV show uh, where uh, the folks were going to Venus, I think, and it was a reality TV show. Oh, yeah. And so, uh, didn't make it. They, they canceled the show. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the whole, the, the scary part where, you know, I've read books where it's, you know, oh, right, here goes the program. And then it's partway through and, you know, the government pulls funding or like you said, you know, the program is, you know, the TV show is canceled. It's when you're dependent upon one specific thing with no backup plan, it, yeah. it kind of makes me nervous a little bit. 
now. You wouldn't want the first big thing to really be a huge failure either. No, not really. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, well, now we have a big batch of updates. We do. Should we tear, should we tear into those? Do I have a? Is, should I? I don't have a particular jingle for updates, so I don't know. I don't. I, don't, I mean, I could. I could do. A, it doesn't really fit, but I could. I could yeah. Hey, there you there go. go. That'll signify now we're entering the update. There, there we go. Update time. Alrighty, we talked about this back in July. Bionic Vision Australia, a the science consortium, actually surgically installed one of its early prototype robotic eyes ah. in the retina of a woman with hereditary sight loss. So we've talked about this is where the little chip is installed into the back of the retina. Right. Now, this early prototype is only one that will work in the lab. So it only works there. It's got you know, 24 electrodes. They're actually able to send a little, uh, you know, a signal, and she saw a little flash. So she, you know, it's, it's you know, degenerative. There's blind but she saw a couple of little flashes. Hmm. And so the whole idea is to, now what they're trying to do is build up uh, this database of how everything is put together. It's like, all right, if we send this kind of signal, where, ah. what kind of flash? So it's this, uh, essentially a vision processor going along to, exec- to allow the doctors to determine, you know, what is seen, what kind of levels of stimulation does it take? So getting, getting everything together on this, you know, one level. For the 24 electrode type, be able to, so they can see kind of idea of how to dial it in, how to say, all right, you want to see this. Now we need to send the flashes in this way. And then they'll work, work towards the 98 electrode device. And then you'll be able, then the per- people might be able to see, you know, large objects, you know, buildings and cars and stuff. So you can see, oh, wow. building there, car there. Now the, you know, it's all, we've talked about it uh, before that, like high acuity one, you know. Mm. Mm-hmm. 10, you know, 10, 24 electrode devices. And then you'll be able to read, like recognize faces or read large print. So this whole, you know, stepping towards in that future. And this is the, you know, so all it takes is, you know, putting a little chip on the retina. So it's not changing anything in the eye per se. It's just sending those electrical signals. Right. You know, for, that you know, was, that the was retina, the amazing part about it, I thought. Yeah, because it's the retina that's no longer being able to send those. All the nerve endings are fine. Mm-hmm. So if you can just sort of jumpstart those, and they've actually started using it now. So I, I recall like when we did the study, and they're like, later this year, we're going to plan to try this. And here they are. They're trying wow. it. It's moving forward. That really that so, happened fast. Yeah, so I um, this is the type of story that I, I really like coming back on because it's like, hey, remember, it's actually moving forward. Yeah. Because so many of these, especially the medical ones, it takes a really long time. Right. There's a long delay in some of this stuff. But this is one that it's actually already seeing progress on. We're actually seeing progress and kind of looking forward to how this progresses and, you know, how I can might be able to bring it up a couple months down the line or a year down the line and see where we are. Mm -hmm. And uh, if uh, you'd like to hear uh, sort of the backstory on what uh, Heather's talking about, go check out SciBite 55. Was it really that long ago? 55? Yeah, July 24th. It actually just feels like it was a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I know. It's always like... Sometimes I'm like, well, in in the last, I was like, I don't know, how long ago was it? I don't, I don't know. I feel like it's the last couple episodes since everything's been covered. But it it does, uh, it, it even even if even if it's been a few weeks, it's still that's still a very you know uh, brisk uh, progress. Oh yeah. Uh, so that's an update on that. But we have some rover updates too, don't we? We do. Opportunity rover. 
He's being outshone by curiosity, <laughs> brand new kid on the block. But no, Opportunity is still trucking along. It was designed for a little over half a mile and to go 90 Mars days. It's now driven 35 times that distance. It's wow. at uh, almost 22 miles it's driven. Now, it doesn't seem like a lot, but it, t- it takes a little while for it to, to roll. And like I said, it's been th- over 35 times what they thought it would be. 35x. Yeah, and it's lasted oh, 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 34 times what they thought it was oh. you know, designed to do. So the, and the solar array production is still pretty good. It's producing about uh, 568 watt hours. So it's moving out towards a little exposed outcrop so they can look at some clay minerals that they detected from orbit. This is one of the same times where you, know, you use one of the orbiters to kind of lay out, you know, um, a track to say, oh, look, here's some, you know, here's some minerals that really want, that are really cool. What, ha- what happens if we check that out? So you start rolling towards those. Man, how awesome. What kind of sophisticated operation do we got going on there now, huh? Multiple rovers, uh, overhead observation and coordination. Dang. Yep. Yep. They were able to, and they kind of leaned one of their tools over, the rock abrasion tool, to kind of see, you know, it's like, yeah, can we move it here? Yep. Does it look good? Yep. It still looks good. So now we can, you know, they pulled it back and they're ready to roll over to so they can kind of see when they get to the outcrop, would they be able to, you know, uh, abrade it? With their tool. Color me impressed. Yep. Huh. All right. Now, I know that's not the only rover that's on Mars. Nope. The new kid on the block continues to check out its various instruments. The uh, sample analysis at Mars, SAM, it took a sample of the atmosphere. So this is one that it kind of able to take a chunk of the atmosphere, take a peek at it. And as always, if they've got their Friday updates. Yes. Yes, with Mohawk so, guy. And Mohawk guy this time, and you can, you know, they're showing off the the JPL in Morse code in the tracks, and they're able to, you know, they're so proud of that. They're so proud. They're, of they're really proud of that, and it, it really does make a difference. They can see, you know, how far in between those are to make sure there's no slippage or anything. But if you look at Mohawk guy making the newest thing, he's got it on his head. <laughs> he 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 got the the Morse code for JPL into his head. Oh, that's adorable. Yep, and some of the images that you can see in the uh, show notes or on the, you know, update are some mountains that look like they're very layered. Now, yeah. it's corrected, but that's from Mars. That is incredible. They, yeah, they've white corrected it, which means that they've kind of took away the red, so that's what it would look like if that was on Mars, on Earth. Hmm. So it's like, if we took a chunk of this mountain and placed it on Earth, this is what it would look like. Now, for the scientists... You know, the geologist, it makes it really quick. It helps them identify things really quickly. I like things the really red way because it's really cool. Yeah. And it makes it look more Mars. Yeah. Now, for most of the images, they, they've got it both ways. But a lot of the, the ones that they put out like this are the white balanced, what they call it. But so there's a whole bunch of mountain ranges that look really cool. They, they kind of showed off the... The Morse code that you can they be able to start seeing it in the in the trail because they started, you know, driving off. All the instruments are starting to be, you know, if it, they've tested out everything. So it's chucking along to. So hmm. can, hopefully to continue to see that. I always love getting a little, uh, I always love getting a little rover update, even if it's just small stuff. Even if it's just still yep. checking out equipment. It's still very awesome. Yep. All right. Are you ready to jump in the time machine? 
I think so. All right, hop in. I got a new flux right. capacitor in here. Here we go. Close the door. Okay, good. Oh, 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 here we go. Oh, oh yeah, see? Oh, oh. Nice. There we go. Okay, see that? The new flux capacitor, I think, a little more oomph in that. Took us to 124 yeah, years ago. Ah, see? 124 years ago. Uh, ninth, or, of course, 1888, September 7th. What happened this week in science, Heather? The first baby incubator. Actually, first used in the U.S. to care for an infant at the State Immigrant Hospital uh, in New York. Uh, little Edith Eleanor McLean was... Two pounds, seven ounces. McLean. Aw. So, and they originally called these hatching cradles. <laughs> they, I mean, this is early days. You know, three foot square, four feet high. The whole idea was, you know, increase survival rate for premature infants. You know, help maternity, war doctors, all this kind of thing. And how they started sending these out was, over time, they started putting them out in the world's fairs. Like in the 1904 World's Fair, they exhibited 14 of these. And in the most positive twist for the quote-unquote sideshow attraction people, they would take these from town to town. And in order to kind of show people how it was, they would invite local people to bring up their, you know, their premature, you know, essentially critical babies. And they, you know, put them in these incubators and there would be real nurses. You're kidding me. Like people had them there? Yeah. You know, well, you know, it's, I read one story. It was, you know, family, you know, very premature baby, essentially had it in a shoe box or a hat box and kind of walked up to the place and they're like, can I please have my baby here? Wow. So like put them in there, you know, as far as long as the fair is there, then it kind of increases the survivability of these, of these infants. And so it was, you know, we have real doctors, they have real nurses, and they kind of take care of them and everyone could come up and look at, oh, cute a baby. Demonstration. You know, yeah. a demonstration yeah. and pay their ticket to say, oh, cute baby. And, you know, take them around the country and be able to spread the news like, oh, yeah, this, this actually works. And all they really had to do was go to a place and be like, hey, bring your babies here. Yeah. And it was able to to spread. I mean, they used it for... Everything from orphanages to poor people. So all these kind of people could say they had nowhere else to turn. You know, the poor orphanages could all bring these, you know, premature critical infants there and be able to get them cared for. Huh. You I, know, the, so, what an interesting history of, of such an uh, important device. Yeah. I mean, in, in the original days, it was, you know, up to 90 degrees and they were actually able to keep them from... um water you know it's essentially heated up water and kept gallons of it nearby to help keep it warm but it's one of those things where it has this interesting very interesting history about how it got spread and you know fairs you know fairs and country fairs and you know sideshow attraction type stuff and there's so many of those stories that are kind of like you know exploitive of you know people sometimes in the in the early days but in this case it was very specifically good for everyone yeah there was sort of a yeah because there was people in need that yeah were able to get care mm-hmm. hmm. well uh with that said heather i believe i should retune the science computer and have it look up into the sky this week 
That's right. This week on Wednesday, one of the brightest stars in the night sky, Vega, is going to pass high in the sky in the mid-latitudes of the U.S. Uh, as we go on to Friday, about midnight, you'll see Jupiter and the last quarter moon rise in the north to northeast. They're going to rise higher throughout the night, hmm. and they're going to be all the way to the southeast right before sunrise. Uh, as we roll on to Monday, September the 10th, Venus is going to be well to the lower left of the moon and moving closer and closer to it as the as the next few as those few days progress. In general, Venus this week around 3 a.m. ish is going to rise in the east northeast. By dawn, it'll shine high in the eastern sky. And Mars and Saturn around twilight, they've been you know they've been hanging out in that triangle. They're they're starting to move farther and farther apart. They're in the west to southwest, about five degrees apart. That take that means take your middle three fingers and hold them at arm's length, and that's about how far apart they should be. Hmm. There you go. And uh, Heather has those noted in the show notes too. So if you see something in the sky and you're like, "Oh, what was it?" she said, just go uh, over to episode sixty-one. She's got them noted towards the bottom of the show notes. Yes. And somebody wrote in and said. Where do I find the show notes? And the show notes, uh, I think that was two weeks ago. And the show notes, you go over to Jupiter Broadcasting, find Sidebyte 61, and then where the video is, you scroll down, you see the download link, scroll down a little bit further, boom, Heather's awesome show notes. All sorts of good information, links, image you know, image galleries. Videos embedded in the, in the show notes themselves. Yep, videos, and of course, right there at the bottom, your info about the sky. There you go, Heather. I believe that's the whole show, isn't it? I think so. Well, one of the other things folks should do out there with Jupiter Broadcasting is join us live, like our fantastic chat room who is starring in our show right now. Thank you to the chat room for joining us this week for another excellent episode of SciBite. And Heather, thank you for another wonderful show. Thank you. All right, everyone. Well, thanks so much for tuning to this week's episode of SciBite. Be sure you go grab it Wednesday mornings if you're not able to join us live over at jupiterbroadcasting.com and send us an email, SciBite at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Let us know what you'd like to see in the future and uh, any follow-up you'd like to touch on. All right, everyone. Well, thanks so much for tuning to this week's episode. See you next week. <laughs>